Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking to you from Brussels. Sadly, Ollie can't be with us this week, so it's just me, I'm afraid. Today, we're going to be taking a look at Turkey's PKK conflict. On November 13th, a bomb detonated in Turkey's largest city, Istanbul, killing six people and wounding a further 81. Ankara blamed the attack on members of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, which Ankara, Washington and the EU have designated as a terrorist organization. In response, Turkey launched airstrikes against the PKK and affiliated groups like the Kurdish People's Protection Units known as the YPG in northern Syria and Iraq and it announced a military incursion into Syria. Uçaklarla, toplarla, sihalarla yaptığımız operasyonlar sadece başlangıçtır. This marks the latest chapter in Turkey's four decades long conflict with the PKK, which saw a deadly surge in 2015 following the breakdown of an almost two and a half year long ceasefire. Since 2015, the conflict has claimed over 6,000 lives in Turkey, Syria, and Iraq through clashes or terror attacks. The fighting has also increasingly spread to battlegrounds in Iraq's Sinjar region and northern Syria, drawing in a growing set of actors into the conflict. With the latest escalation, already complicated efforts to settle down the conflict might have become even more difficult. To talk about all of this, I'm delighted to welcome Berkay Mandrje. Berkay is Crisis Group's senior analyst for Turkey. Before joining Crisis Group, he worked at the Turkish Economic and Social Studies Foundation, covering judicial and security sector reform issues, and for a joint EU-Turkish Justice Ministry twinning project. He is joining us from Istanbul in Turkey. Berkay, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you very much for having me, Elisa. So, before we really dig into the subject, uh, for those listeners who like me don't know the history of the conflict between Turkey and the PKK could you briefly tell us what is at the heart of this conflict why and how did it begin sure um the PKK the Kurdistan Workers Party um as they call themselves um is a Kurdish insurgent group that was formed um in the 1980s um um within Turkey and also with a presence in northern Iraq and northern Syria The headquarters of the PKK um have been in Kandil and the leader um of the PKK at the time forming it was Abdullah Öcalan. Abdullah Öcalan was um captured by Turkey in 1999 and he has been imprisoned since then. And the initial reason given by the PKK for its establishment was um the oppression of Kurds in Turkey. This eventually um turned into a separatist movement. in um trying to create an independent Kurdistan 
that was at least the aim. Those aims have shifted over time, and you know other segments within the group have um, um, uh, tried to gain autonomy in the different states they are, um, uh, you know, um, embedded in Syria, Iraq, and um, and Turkey, and also Iran, Western Iran. Uh, and, you know, it has been ongoing for 40 years now, um, the insurgency that they have been waging um, against uh, Turkey. And with that, it is actually one of the longest insurgencies around the world. And, yeah, it has been very deadly as well. Uh, around 40,000 people are estimated to have been killed in um, the around 40 years of fighting that has been uh, ongoing. Thanks uh, for that um, brief but uh, informative history. Um so as I mentioned in the, in the introduction, the conflict flowed up significantly in the twenty in twenty fifteen. Um, since then, there have been significant shifts, both in terms of the battlefield dynamics and the tactics used by the warring parties. I was wondering if you could tell us about some of these changes and their effect upon the conflict. So since uh, the ceasefire broke down in 2015, so it's been around seven and a half um, years, there have been three key dynamics where we have seen shifts in the conflict. One, the scene and the theater of the conflict has changed. Two, the intensity and type of violence that we have seen has changed, which is also reflective of um, changing tactics on the ground. And three, We've seen more actors being involved and getting pulled into the PKK Turkey um, escalation. Uh, and, you know, we've seen variations along these three dimensions uh, in roughly three phases. So between 2015 and 2017, there was a, a really high urban, high fatality urban phase of the conflict where we saw a lot of escalation in some um, of uh, Turkey's urban districts in the southeast, the majority Kurdish southeast you know, direct clashes, sniper attacks, um, and sort of the regular features of or urban warfare. And at times it became also very difficult to distinguish between, you know, civilians and militants um, because of the urban nature of the of the conflict. Um, and of course, this also resulted in sort of a, a bout of um, PKK-linked bomb attacks um, um, that they carried out in Turkish cities, in Istanbul, Ankara, which further escalated the conflict. And then we saw uh, high-intensity Turkish operations um, for about one and a half years, where we saw, you know, some of these districts getting completely flattened and destru- destructed, um, and you know, of course, affecting the livelihoods of tens of thousands of people and displacing also quite a significant number. And we were there um, in 2015 when this was happening. Uh, we were doing field research in one of these districts and witnessing actually how the escalation was affecting um, the lives of civilians uh, over there. Um, and we've also written about the sort of the human cost of fighting at the time. So this was a pretty gruesome period. The initial 2015-2017 period was quite bloody, and it was a pretty gruesome, high-fatality period in the conflict. Then we saw a shift of fighting into rural areas between 2017 and 2019, where after the Turkish military had pushed out the PKK from these urban centers, um, they were pursuing them um, more in rural uh, areas in the southeast. The PKK sort of tried to respond to that by resorting more to IED attacks at the time, roadside IED IED attacks. So there were also still quite high uh, fatality rates in this period. And the last phase, which um, is still continuing today, actually, started in 2019 when we saw shift of fighting into northern Iraq 
and increasingly also more tensions between uh, Turkey and the YPG and uh, northern Syria. The YPG is the uh, Syrian affiliate of the PKK. Um, um, and, you know, since the conflict moved into northern Iraq, there have been um, two major dynamics in the battlefield. Um, the Turkish military has resorted more to its air power. We've seen thousands of airstrikes in designated parts of northern Iraq. The military also established outposts in the area. Um, and more importantly, we've seen um, Turkey's armed drones have also entered the battlefield. And, you know, this new military technology has definitely proved to be a game changer in two ways. One, you know, the Turkish military was able to penetrate into areas, mountainous areas that uh, it previously had not been able to. Um, and secondly, the use of drones also uh, enabled um, the Turkish military to carry out precision, precision strikes against uh, the upper echelons of the PKK. So, and we're tracking those um, um, figures in our PKK conflict visual explainer, um, where we have seen a constant increase in higher ranking PKK members being targeted. And this is based on the information that the PKK itself shares, not information shared by to, to the Turkish side. So does does this mean that the, the PKK is on the back foot now? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, the PKK, of course, has responded to this. Um, they have responded to this um, by entrenching themselves more, um, especially in Sinjar in northern Iraq, and also entrenching themselves more um, in northeast Syria, where their Syrian affiliate um, um, has uh, quite a lot of clout still. Um, and what they have done uh, basically is to um, shield themselves also from these Turkish incursions by um, aligning themselves with, first of all, Iranian-backed paramilitary groups in Iraq and also Yazidi forces in Sinjar, in the Sinjar area. Um, all of these forces, you know, are at odds with Turkey at different different levels. So what they've done is to use uh, the protection, the sort of the umbrella of these groups to shield themselves from from Turkish uh, strikes, uh, and they have um, increasingly, in as I said, in northeast Syria, they have increasingly um, asserted themselves in the decision making ranks of the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is sorry, I mean there are a lot of acronyms. <laughs> so the Syrian Democratic Forces, which um, you know the backbone of which is the YPG. And the YPG is the Syrian affiliate of the PKK. So there is, there is a connection there. And they have, they have asserted themselves more also within the ranks of the SDF. So overall, you know, I guess it's, it's very hard to put a number on it. Um, but that has been sort of the response, um, of, um, the PKK, uh, uh, to sort of increasing Turkish airstrikes and, uh, Turkish military incursions against them. Um, within Turkey and within um, uh, northern Iraq as well. So you've mentioned that the conflict has spread into these new theatres in northern Syria and Iraq. Um, and this has inevitably drawn more actors into the conflict. And you mentioned Iran and also the Yazidis. It would be good if you could um, tell us a little bit more about about who some of these actors are, how their involvement um, has impacted security in the regions in which the conflict now plays out, and um, you know how how this has uh, affected how Turkey engages in the region. Yes, indeed. I mean, what we have seen uh, in northern Iraq 
is that with um, Turkey's operations, there have been more, um, and also its collaboration with the Kurdistan Democratic Party, that's the KDP in northern Iraq, um, um, that has actually driven more intra-Kurdish tensions as well. We've seen clashes between the PKK and the KDP. And, uh, you know, the KDP especially has been important for uh, Turkey to also gain um, to gather more solid information from the ground. Uh, and that's why these drone strikes, etc., have also been relatively effective because they have partnered with that group. But that, of course, has driven deeper wedges within the different Kurdish actors in northern Iraq and the KDP being the, the foremost um, um, among those. Uh, and there were there was a period when there was quite high tensions between the two. Um, and we, we saw actually also clashes between the PKK and the KDP. Um, and another axis of tensions that we have also seen um, is the Turkey-Iran-backed paramilitary groups axis, where, you know, some of these groups are pretty well embedded in northern Iraq, especially in the Sinjar region, as I already said. Um, um, but, you know, especially when Turkey was carrying out strikes in Sinjar, uh, we've uh, seen sort of vocal um, opposition by these forces against them. And then sometimes there were clashes which were difficult to um, attribute to any of these actors. But it seemed um, that some of these Iran-backed paramilitary groups were also behind them in terms of attacks against Turkish forces and sometimes also against KDP forces. Um, so the Tur- Turkey-Iran um, um, tension and the undercurrent of, you know, Turkey-Iran competition and rivalry in northern Iraq also seems to have um, um, gotten more serious. That being said, you know, our assessment is not that we see like a major escalation risk between these two regional actors. I mean, Turkey and Iran, they have a history of compartmentalizing their relations. They have not been at war for over 400 years. So they, there is more of a tendency to respect each other's red lines. Um, um, so although tensions with the conflict moving into northern Iraq, these axes of rivalries and tensions uh, have, uh, have been aggravated. I think it's also important to caveat that a bit and, and, and say that especially the Turkey-Iran axis, uh, the escalation risk there doesn't seem very high because of, again, the historical um, sensitivities there of both actors. I wanted to turn now to look at sort of escalation risks in Syria. I know you're not a Syria expert, but you do work very closely with our Syria analyst. Um, so it, in Syria, Turkey is increasingly targeted positions of the YPG, which, as we've said, Ankara sees as an extension of the, of the PKK. Um, why is Ankara so focused on rolling back the YPG? And why does it see it as such a threat? Um, Ankara has been voicing um, its opposition to the presence of the uh, YPG in Syria for for a long time already. Um, What we have seen is that Ankara perceives the formation of a quasi-statelet in the northeast of Syria as a security threat, as a national security threat, actually. Um, And they have already carried out three incursions into Syria, um, um, at different times. The last one was in October 2019. And um, in general, the main motivation is to roll back the YPG as much as possible 
because it perceives, because Ankara perceives a direct security threat in terms of the connections that um, Ankara perceives um, the SDF to have also with the PKK. And, you know, our analysis is also that the PKK has asserted itself more within the ranks of the YPG in the last few years. And the more that has happened, the more of a concern that has turned into for Ankara. In general, sort of operationally and strategically, um, Turkey perceives um, the establishment or the um, the formation of a quasi-statelet in that area where the SDF and where the PKK has influence and where the SDF is controlling territory. It is controlling around 80% of resources of Syria. So it's a huge income generation opportunity for them as well. Um, of course, the SDF also enjoys support from um, the U.S. Um, because the U.S. has backed the SDF in its fight against ISIS and, and that collaboration still remains intact um, today. Um, so in general, I think there is a realization that the SDF and with all the influence that the PKK has within the SDF uh, in the immediate term, midterm and longer term um, will constitute a national security threat for Turkey in terms of potential attacks emanating from these areas. And we've seen a number of attacks, you know, where um, some Turkish backed forces have been targeted um, also in terms of the deployment, the logistical networks that exist in terms of the transfer of weapons, transfer of personnel. So it is really, um, and that's, I think, the security bureaucracy, what the security bureaucracy perceives as um, a serious security threat. Um, and, you know, that's why they have been really keen on and intent on rolling back the YPG for the last few years. Sadece PKK ve FETÖ terör örgütlerinin ülkemize insani maliyeti bile tek başına onlarca yıla bedeldir. You mentioned the US, uh, which is supporting the STF for the fight against ISIS. How... Has this affected Washington's relation with Ankara? And you know, what's what's the US's role in the in the the conflict between Turkey and the PKK? Yeah, so the, the US, um, I mean the main partner of the US is the SDF. There's no iteration or um clear mandate of you know support of the YPG. Uh, but right now, I mean the SDF still, you know, seems to be playing quite a critical role there because you still have uh, attempts by ISIS to claw back in the Northeast. So um, the capabilities that the SDF and its security forces there have built up are uh, important to check um, that and, you know, to um, prevent any resurgence of ISIS in the Northeast. And secondly, of course, you have um, detention facilities around 27 and also camps. I mean, the whole camp being the most um, prominent one where you still have um, ISIS members detained and these are under SDF control. Uh, you know, there are questions about how effective that control is and how much capabilities the SDF has to keep these uh, people in check. But in that sense, and, and especially in terms of keeping ISIS degraded in, in, in the Northeast, 
the SDF still is an important partner for the U.S., and in that sense, they, they have continued to support it, which, of course, um, has created a lot of grievances on part of Ankara because they see Western support um, for a group that is the leading security priority for it. Um, and this has been a leading issue in um, a leading grievance also in Turkey-US ties. Um, and you know, there have been discussions around um, separating the YPG, like the Syrian um, Kurdish elements, and the um, PKK. So there have been discussions around that in the past, and also promises that both uh, the US and Russia actually delivered to, to, to Turkey. But that hasn't um, moved anywhere. Um, and, you know, right now there are discussions about a potential new operation that Turkey wants to carry out in northern Syria. And we're seeing all of that come up now, all of those grievances where um, Ankara is saying that the U.S. and Russia um, did not fulfill the promises of, um, you know, clearing the border strip on the 30 kilometer deep uh, border strip from um, YPG elements. And that was that was also part of an agreement that um, Russia and um, the uh, Turkey had um, uh, had made in 2019. Um, so it, it remains a thorn in relations, basically, more so with the U.S., and the continued um, support there, and uh, you know, it's it's just it's very hard to imagine a way out because um, uh, it seems stuck on different fronts, and so uh, each actor is trying to create facts on the ground and position themselves in a different way. Um, it also very much relates to how the Syria scene evolves, and also the Iraq scene evolves, by the way. So right now, it's more like both uh, all actors trying to fortify their positions, hold on to whatever they have. Um, and or in the case of uh, of Turkey to roll back um, the gains of the YPG as much as it can. So you've mentioned Russia, so I think we should maybe pursue that line a little bit as well. Obviously, uh, engagement in Syria uh, brings uh, Turkey into contact um, or p- potentially into tensions with with Russia. How does that impact the Russia Turkey relations. I mean, you said earlier that Turkey is very good at compartmentalizing its relationships. Um, and it's done that with Iran. Is it doing the same with Russia? And especially given that, you know, the role that it's been playing vis a vis the Ukraine war as well, the sort of mediation role that it's been playing. How does the, 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 the PKK threat, um, and the, uh, the incursions into Syria, how, do the, how does that play into to relations with Russia? Yes, indeed. Uh, Russia plays an important role, especially um, for areas that are still under the control of the YPG, which are to the west of the Euphrates River, um, where, you know, Russia also has, um, to a certain extent, um, air su- superiority. Um, so right now, um, um, it seems likely, the most likely scenario that um, many analysts also agree, is that Turkey is sort of bargaining and negotiating with Russia for um, some operation in the Tal Rifat, the town of Tal Rifat, where the YPG has um, presence. Um, but Russia's role um, is definitely important, but Turkey is also important for Russia. And more so, especially after the Ukraine war, as you pointed out, um, 
you know, I would argue that Turkey's strategic importance for Russia and the U.S. has increased um, uh, when you compare it to 2019, for example, when Turkey carried out the last operation. Um, and the reactions to, to the initial airstrikes that Turkey, Turkey carried out in, in November um, was also pretty timid from both sides. Um, it was quite different. Um, but nevertheless, you know, Turkey in practice, like operationally, actually doesn't need a green light or a yellow light or whatever the color of that light is going to be from Russia or the U.S. They, they operationally could carry out the operation unilaterally as well. But I don't think that's the preferred option part of Ankara, um, especially because they see the increased strategic importance that Turkey now has acquired with the Ukraine war. I think there is a tendency to at least get some sort of yellow light um, from Russia, especially for Talifat. Um, you know, the U.S. seems to be more categorical about that. So um, I'm probably not going to move forward, but you, you never know. Um, these are so still bargains and discussions that are ongoing. Um, but in that sense, Russia still has a lot of levers that it could play, uh, a lot of cards that it could play against uh, uh, Turkey, especially also in Idlib, um, where we, you know, Turkey has entrenched itself quite well there, actually, but there's still escalation there could drive a lot of refugees um, towards uh, Turkey's borders. You can also imagine sort of other conflict theaters where Turkey and Russia are actually at odds with each other, you know, it ranges from Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, and in that sense, Turkey is playing this balancing act and is trying to... um, uh, raise its importance and strategic importance both for Russia and the US. Um, so that seems to be sort of one one of the checks at least um, where um, we will probably not see a, a full-blown sort of unilateral um, operation uh, which might risk those relations. So I'd like to bring us back to Turkey itself. You've told us about some of the the expansion of the conflict and the uh, impact that that's had on Turkey's foreign relationships. Uh, but I'm interested to know how the PKK conflict is seen in Turkey. For example, how was the bombing on the 13th of November uh, in Istanbul? How was that viewed by Turks? Is there any sympathy for the PKK or are they seen as being completely irredeemable? So the Istiklal bombing um, in November, it of course brought back memories of the 2015-2017 period in Turkey where uh, we had um, uh, bouts of attacks, both ISIS attacks and uh, PKK attacks, a lot of fatalities, uh, um, a security situation that was really dire at the time. Um, so in general, people, you know, it was, uh, mm, people remembered that period and it... Um, uh, increased the sense of vulnerability among many uh, among many Turkish citizens. Um, in general, the overwhelming majority of uh, Turkish citizens um, are very negatively opposed to the PKK and, of course, the violence that they have uh, used uh, over the years. Uh, and this is why you know the PKK issue is also domestically such an important issue um, for governments and for nationalist parties to rally supporters. We saw back in sort of when there was a peace process between the two sides, 
we saw that you know support for nationalist parties at the time increased quite a lot. They were against the peace process. So there is definitely this element of um, uh, you know the majority, the you know overwhelming majority of the t- Turkish citizens being um, opposed to the PKK, and, and that has electoral dividends as well. Um, of course, the only party that has um, uh, less oppositionist views um, um, around the PKK is the pro, pro, pro-Kurdish HDP, though they also are denouncing the violence the PKK has been using. And um, um, But ideologically, there is more affinity uh, on, on their part. Um, and they receive around 10% or so of um, uh, support in elections. Um, but But by and large, you know, this is an issue that both conservatives, left-leaning oppositionists, um, they usually align on sort of uh, the hardline approach towards the PKK. And that's also one reason why it is difficult to um, resolve this conflict, uh, because there is broad support for hardline military um, um, means, for the use of hardline military means to combat the PKK. And Turkey is heading into presidential and parliamentary elections in June 2023. And you said it's, you know, it's often a, a good vote winner, the, the PKK issue. Is it going to be a factor in the forthcoming elections? And will the elections affect how Ankara prosecutes the, the conflict? For example, I mean, the Kurds make up about 18% of the electorate. You know, how significant is this Kurdish vote? Could it affect the outcome? And if Turkey did mount an offensive in northern Iraq, would this be popular with the electorate? In northern Syria. Yeah, no, sorry, in northern Syria. Um, yeah, so the 18%, the 17, 18% is, um, the Kurds, uh, the, includes Kurds that are conservative. So you, you know, you have this left-leaning, um, um, Kurdish constituency, which is relatively consolidated within the HDP. Um, that's around 10 to 12%. And then you have, um, six to 7%, uh, of uh, the Turkish or the Turkish citizen constituency that, uh, are conservative Kurds. So they, um, do not support the HDP for a long time, actually, in the beginning, especially they supported the, the AK party, the current government and President Erdogan, um, at the time. So that's roughly how the Kurdish constituency uh, breaks breaks down um, in uh, the Turkish uh, in the Turkish uh, electorate, but in terms of um, the elections coming up, of course we are in a, in a bit of a different context compared to 2018 elections. Turkey's economy has declined considerably. Uh, we've seen you know inflation rise to 85 percent. That's the official figures. And according to independent estimates, it could actually be double that figure. Um, and that has really impacted the livelihoods of many people. We have seen the middle class in Turkey really shrink and almost evaporate. And at the same time, we've seen anti-refugee sentiments rising. You know, Turkey is home to 4 million refugees and is generally gener- generously hosting over 4 million refugees for a long time, actually, already. But recently, we've seen a rise in anti-refugee sentiments. 
And when, when you know, in polls, when Turkish, the Turkish electorate is asked, um, the economy and the presence of refugees are the main, the leading topics that are probably going to be um, defining the outcome of um, the 2023 elections. Now, what does that mean for, um, you know, the escalation uh, with the PKK and the, the PKK conflict? Um, it appears that, you know, that is still a, an issue, of course, that is very close to the heart of many nationalists. And this election, it will be, uh, especially the, the Kurds will be kingmakers, especially the HDP um, constituency will be kingmakers because uh, in the presidential poll, um, them shifting t- to supporting one candidate will probably make that difference. The opposition alliance right now, they seem to be getting around 40% of support. Um, and the HTP has around 10% of uh, support. So without the HTP actually supporting the opposition, it seems very unlikely that there's going to be, uh, that, that they will be able to win in either presidential or, um, parliamentary polls. Uh, but of course, it's still a bit unclear how this will, uh, turn out. I mean, it will really depend on also what and who the opposition chooses as their presidential candidate. Because, you know, the HDP constituency, of course, will not be open to supporting a candidate that has sort of um, ultra-nationalist um, uh, background, an ultra-nationalist background. Um, and, you know, there's also a closure case that is ongoing against, against the HDP right now and against a political ban that is demanded for its main functionaries. So if the HDP is closed down, that may change electoral calculations and it would, uh, it could change, uh, uh, you know, it could also change the preferences of the HDP constituents. Then we will have to see, um, whether there's going to be a breakup in that constituency, which, you know, might work in the favor of, um, the current government. Uh, but there are still a lot of unknowns. Uh, but, it, but, you know, in general, this has also been the case, for example, in local elections in Istanbul when the opposition won in 2019. Um, the, the, the Kurdish vote usually is the swing vote, um, in elections in, in, in Turkey. So, uh, that's definitely something to look out for. And there's still, it's very hard to see how it will play out because, um, I mean, it's six, seven months we have until elections, but still there are a lot of unknowns in terms of how this will play out. And, and I guess, you know, each side, both the current incumbent government and the opposition, they're trying to position themselves also in a way to be able to garner that support, that Kurdish support um, um, uh, at some point. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, but I just want to ask one more question, um, which is, you know, what are the prospects for, um, you know, the, the conflict settling down? Do you see avenues for reducing tensions? Are there specific steps that could be taken or signs to look out for? I mean, if you could just give us a few points, which, you know, maybe give us a bit of hope or, or, or dash that hope. Um, I mean, ahead of elections, we are always seeing, um, a bit of a more constructive, um, tone, especially on the Kurdish issue in terms of reaching out to Kurdish constituencies. But of course, that's sort of a separate issue uh, from the PKK conflict. I mean, I think the government has very much tried to separate those two issues, where you have 
more outreach to the Kurds, maybe giving them more rights also in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the leading rights demands they have. But on the other side, at the same time, continuing with sort of hardline military approaches to squeeze the PKK uh, even further, also to not allow them to exploit some of the vulnerabilities and potentially some of the grievances um, that some of some of um, Turkey's Kurds still uh, may may hold. And so they have sort of divided the two issues. And in that sense, you know, even if there could be some more symbolic steps, some outreach on uh, to the Kurds for electoral dividends um, before elections, I don't necessarily think that that's going to translate to um, a change of policy on the PKK, especially also because uh, I guess Ankara sees that, you know, the PKK and its affiliates um, also, you know, uh, in Ankara's perception, uh, its affiliates who are supported in Syria by the U.S. are still pretty strong in in that in, in the sense that um, they have still quite a lot of influence. They have uh, sort of the statelet, basically quasi-statelet, again from Ankara's perspective, that they want to preserve. So as long as you know that dynamic continues, where Ankara perceives the PKK and its affiliates to be relatively well positioned. Um, it doesn't seem very likely that there's going to be a change of um, sentiment or a change of approach on the side of Ankara. I think it will continue to be focused on squeezing the PKK and its affiliates and rolling back its influence as much as possible, uh, potentially until it sees that it's weakened to a point where it could potentially go back to um, um, to talking to it. But, um, you know, there are a lot of dynamics, a lot of factors that will also play into it. And one of the foremost factors will be sort of the domestic um, setting we're going to see after 2023 elections uh, and also the domestic alliances um, that uh, will form, either continue or new alliances that we could see forming. So it's still... I think a wait and see situation, but I don't expect any drastic changes um, in the short term. So, um, yeah. Thanks. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Burkai, thank you so much for joining us today on War and Peace. It was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for having me again, Elisa. To read more about Crisis Group's work on Turkey's PKK conflict, check out our website, which is www.crisisgroup.org. Especially look at our Turkey PKK visual explainer, which gives a comprehensive overview of the battlefield developments in the conflict and is updated on a regular basis. Uh, you can follow Berkai on Twitter, uh, for the moment at least, um, he is at Berkai Mandurje. Um, you can also follow Crisis Group and me on Twitter. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group and I'm at Elissa Jobson. I'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwab. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. 
You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't done so already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. This is our last episode for 2022. We will be returning in the second week of January and very much hope that you will join us again. Until then, goodbye.